0: Good morning. How are we today? Good. We really need to lift these people up. I realized, you know, I I went through school, got my teaching credential, went through student teaching and realized I love kids two days a week. I can't do it five. So God bless these people who put themselves out there. Some of them have some very challenging kids. Those would be your kids and my kids. Um, So we lift them up and we're thankful for them. And uh, it's awesome. Hey, uh, we are, if you're just kind of catching up with us, uh, we are in week three of a series called Common Ground. And what we're trying to do is look at what are some of the ways that we have division. How can we be united in some of the areas that we have division? And I think for a long time that we have looked at there's us in the church and then there's the world, there's everybody else, and there's a lot of stuff going on culturally that is really kind of drawing some lines even for us within the church, even for us within the church. And we'll get through some of this. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, whether it's whether it's death and dying and what are our views on euthanasia and war, whether it's racial reconciliation or whether you are never Trump or always Trump, never Hillary, always Hillary, whatever that is, there are a variety of opinions that exist in this room even. And what we want to do is look at where's God at in all of these things. How can we literally sit down and have a conversation about this? If, if you're wondering why there's the huge lampshade above my head that I think is up there pretty well... Um, the idea is we want to sit down, we want to have a conversation about this, and we want to dig in, and really like kind of in a good way, in a healthy way, how can we find common ground instead of finding ways that we are divided, and find out what are the differences? Because I think for a lot of us, that is, I will listen to people, and I will try to figure out where are they different from me, and and how can we kind of like divide, where are they at theologically, where are they at? So I think the mindset for us has to change a bit that we need to be able to look at some of this stuff and find common ground because there's a balance of grace and truth that needs to exist. And there are barriers for people to be able to come into the church. And one thing I will say many times this morning is that the church needs to be the safest place on earth. The church needs to be the safest place on earth. But for some of you sitting in here today, it's not all that safe. Some of you are dealing with stuff that if only we knew, it would feel really uncomfortable. And if you found out some of this stuff, then it would feel really uncomfortable for you receiving some of the stuff that people are going through. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this in the realms of marriage, family, and relationships. And when we sat down and thought, who's going to talk about this today— Unfortunately, my title is Marriage and Family Pastor, and so here I am. And I was really hoping we'd have a really great guest speaker that would be here with us today so I could learn. So I just want to let you know from the beginning that I am a person who is in process. I am journeying with you in this, and honestly, the collective wisdom in this room, I have a lot to learn. So I'm just going to share what I believe God has put on my heart for us this morning. And, And what I want us to think about is that we have things that we have to overcome. Um, you look at what's going on in our, our society, and this is not an easy place to be living today. It's not an easy place to be a Christian, and, and, and sometimes we have fallen to sin. In fact, many times we have fallen to sin, and I want us to look today about what does it look like for us to have restoration and coming up from underground with some of our stuff. And, and so we're going to look at it. Um, ripped from the headlines in the last couple of weeks, um, here's one headline. It might shock you. I feel like every word that adds to this gets a little bit more shocking. Mother and daughter who married after the mom divorced her son, well, now the mother and daughter are charged with incest. What? Yeah, I know. Some, wait, what? I, yeah, there, there is a, a mother and daughter. The mother's 43, the daughter's 25, and they got married. But a couple years ago, the mother and the son were married and then divorced. And now they are being charged, the mother and the daughter are charged with incest. This is a case that's going on. The the mother and the daughter wore matching Superman t shirts in their mugshots. All right? What do we do with that? How do we deal with that? Would those people, if they showed up here at Calvary Church this morning, would this be the safest place on earth? Okay. (laughs) How about this one? Here's another article Sex Before Kissing. How 15 year old girls are dealing with porn addicted boys. A couple of lines from this article. When asked, How do you know a guy likes you? an eighth grade girl replied, He still wants to talk to you after you give him oral sex. A male high school student said to a girl, If you give me oral sex, I'll give you a kiss so girls are provided expected to provide sex acts for tokens of affection and are coached through it by porn top boys and the article goes on to say that there really isn't any shame about talking about this anymore that 15 year old boys can have discussions and engage and say well what did you watch last night oh i watched i saw that one too and i want us to think about this today is that god wants to redeem shame in a culture where it feels like there's less and less shame, and really sin is being celebrated all over the place. Now, we know what, what shame is, and we know what personal shame is, but I, I want us to even just delve into this idea that there is a shame that extends beyond just a personal shame. And you could look at that in Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve sin, they hide from God, they're ashamed. And there's a sin that actually extends, I would say, even more corporately. And here's what I would like you to think about. That some of you in your marriages, you have a corporate shame within your marriage because your marriage is struggling today. There are things that have happened in your marriage. There are things that you are struggling about. You might feel stuck and nobody knows about it. So not only do you go underground with stuff personally, but you can do that within your own marriage. I believe that there's a corporate shame that extends to your family. Whether you have a child in your home who has run amok, whether it is drugs, loose living, they've decided that they're a homosexual, whatever that is, and you have the family secrets that you don't want anybody to come out with because that would bring Shame on your family. God is in the business of redeeming shame. I want to look at this through the lens of a passage in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. The background is God tells Joshua to go into the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. They finally go. And in the previous chapter, they beat up Jericho, right? There's a great, huge, amazing victory in Joshua six twenty-seven, just the verse right before chapter 7, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. Israel is celebrating this huge victory, and then we have this transitional word in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, The son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. There was a ban. Before they go into Jericho, God says, don't take anything. You might see some stuff that looks really attractive, but you cannot take it. If it's gold and silver, then it belongs in the treasury of God. But everything else, just leave it alone. Well, this guy Achan He sees some stuff that he actually really, really likes, and he takes it, and he hides it in his tent. Israel is feeling pretty proud of themselves. They're feeling pretty strong. And so they go to their next battle. The place is called Ai. And as they go towards Ai, they say, you know what? Jericho was a much bigger city. Ai is just this tiny little thing. Um, We're not going to send all of our troops out. So Joshua says, I'm only going to send out 3,000 troops. Let's just not, you know, the rest of you guys take a break. So they go out and this is what happens. In verse three, chapter seven, they returned to Joshua and said, Don't let all the people go out, only about two or three thousand. So Joshua sent three thousand men from the people. Verse five the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men, and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so now there's this like Joshua going to God. What happened? How could this possibly happen? It became this really horrible thing. Well, they look into this, and and they find out that there is sin in the camp. God is talking to Joshua, and this is what it says in verse 13. Rise up, consecrate the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So they go through this process and they find out who it is. Verse 15, it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the band shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Verse 16, we're not going to do a thorough look at this passage. We're going to give you the snapshot so Joshua arose early in the morning. He brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerites, And he brought from the family of the Zerites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe from the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, "My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord." the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and I took them and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Our shame causes us to go underground with our sin. Our shame causes us to go underground with our sin. He takes all of this stuff, which would have been a lifetime of riches, everything he possibly could need. He thought he was getting away with it. And he doesn't. He's found out. And I imagine as as Joshua is picking, okay, this tribe, and he's led by God from that tribe to this family, to this really small family, to... You're the man. He was found out. And so he confesses this. What happens here is they go from this amazing victory to this amazing defeat. They lose 36 people. If you go through the book of Joshua, this is the only battle that is recorded that they lose. There's something that's going on. They go 3,000 people and they go against them. Um, it's actually versus 12,000 people in the, in the city of Ai. They lose 36. Later on, after they clean the camp up and everything is dealt with, they send 30,000 people against the 12,000. And if you want to read chapter 8, for some of you guys, it's like the greatest war story of all time, the strategy involved all, all kinds of really great stuff. But he's found out. And there are some things that happen where his shame is, is brought out. I think sometimes we think that when we have sin, that it's just us. It's just my problem, I will deal with it. But I want you to hear today that your shame brings trouble upon more than just us. The consequences are great for Achan. In verse 24, it says, Then Joshua and all Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and everything that belonged to him. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day and all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones if you skip down a little bit it says therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of achor to this day achor means trouble achor means trouble this is the valley of trouble for generations and generations when Israel remembers what happens when they actually go into battle with AI, they have this shame. It's actually this like community shame. It's a place of pain. It's a pa- place of loss. And so they go into this and they think about this and and it's painful for them. They remember the trouble that was brought upon them. Now, if you look at some of this stuff, there is this gap. And I, I made, I'm not a great chart maker, but this is as good as I could do. At the bottom here, we have... Our present situation, this is where I'm at today. And up above on the top, we have happiness. If only I have this, and so for Aiken, it's like bars of gold and really great coats and stuff like that. But if only I have this, then I will be happy. I will be fulfilled. I will be content. And so there is this gap. There's this gap. And the question for us is between where you are at now and where you want to be, what you perceive as happiness what are you filling that gap with? It's, it's, it's amazing that what we fill that gap with is, is so basic. It's so easy. It's, it's like Cosmopolitan magazine. It shocks me sometimes that so many people buy it and read it because you look at all of the articles that are on the front of the magazine and what it promises, and it just seems like, wow, it's so really that if, if you just do all of this. If you just read all of this, then your life will be okay. You will have what you need. And so we fill that gap with stuff that hurts us. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. We've heard this quote before, but we have to, we have to do this again. C.S. Lewis, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Where I want to put this message in context of the total series is if we are going to be people of safety, if we are going to be inviting the world into our doors, we have to have some of our stuff worked out. We have to be able to deal with some of our shame and some of our sinfulness and be open about it, not with everybody. We're not going to have everybody come up here and confess all of your latest sins, but within safe community. That we find places that we are working our stuff out because... What the world, How the world looks at us as the church is what David Kinneman said last week when he was here. That we are irrelevant or we are extreme. And so we are losing our voice in the community because I believe we don't look much different than everybody else out there. But we want to put on the perception that we are. I want to think about some of these different things. I talk to people all the time. Who are ashamed and feel like they don't belong here. They can't show up here on a Sunday morning because they're going through a divorce or they've already been divorced. And it's painful for them to see what appears like all of our happy families here. Talk to people who want to come to church but they don't feel like it's safe here because they don't have children and it's hard for them to see that or there's some kind of judgment because you are a single person and because you are single that you have not made it far enough in life that you have not hit some of those benchmarks and so some of the stuff that is barriers for those who are outside the church and even those who are within the church some of it is our sin and our shame but some of it is also just this perceived judgment that we have put on everybody else. We have to overcome this. And so God speaks to this. And I believe that it's important. And I want us to understand and know that I feel like the culture of our church today, and I'll even just say our church, Calvary Church, is that we are okay with your problems. We are okay with your sins as long as it was like five years ago and you dealt with it. But we are not so great when it comes to I'm struggling with something right now. I'm an alcoholic. And last night, I drank way too much, and I showed up here at church, and I'm still a little bit hungover. What do we do with that as a community? Is this the safest place on earth for people to show up? This is not licensed to sin, and we'll take. We'll take you and just come here and and perform all of your sinful acts here at the church. But how do we love and how do we bring people in and have a conversation, find common ground, and work through that? And I want you to know that if you're here today and you are in the midst of struggle, that God wants to bring out these places of shame for us individually, for us in our marriages, for us in our family, for us as singles, for whatever that is, and He wants to make these things a door of hope. I want you to go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is a phenomenal book. Hosea is this guy who was called by God to marry a harlot, a whore, a woman of the city. And God says, I want you to marry her and your marriage with her, your relationship with her is going to be this picture of me, a holy God, Married to Israel, unfaithful Israel, who is struggling. And as you work out your relationship with her, it's going to be a picture of this return that I want to bring Israel back. God is in the business of restoration and redemption. And right in the middle, actually kind of in the beginning of this, in chapter 2, verse 14, I believe that these are some of the most redemptive and beautiful words in the Bible. And I want you to hear that God looks at our valley of trouble and he sees this as a door of hope. Look at this, Hosea 2.14. He's talking about Israel, his bride, and this is the voice of God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. We have a God that meets us and loves us in the midst of our wilderness experiences. God is right there in the midst He says I will allure her I'm going to use almost this language of romance To draw her back to me And we're not going to go to like the luscious springs of En But we're going to go to the wilderness I believe that while Israel was in the wilderness As painful and as trying as that was for Israel I believe that God loved that time Because he had his bride's attention And so he says, I'll bring her there and I will speak kindly to her. And you look in the next verse, in verse 15, it says this Then I will give her her vineyards from there. Pay attention, vineyards in the wilderness doesn't normally happen. And the valley of Acor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The Valley of Achor is talked about three times in the Bible. Once in Joshua 7, once here, and then another time in Isaiah 65. And it's talking about taking this valley of trouble. And in Isaiah 65, it says, I will make it a resting place where the cattle can come and rest. But here, he says, I will take the valley of trouble and I will make it a door of hope. Have you ever been in a time in the wilderness situations of your life when you were your most scared, your most depressed, your most lonely, and you looked at that and said, in context, surely God is going to do something with this. He's going to take this moment and he's going to make it a door of hope. Beauty from ashes and freedom from shame. That's what God wants to do. That is the voice of God in this. And the response, the response that God wants from his people, she will sing there as in the days of her youth. The response of the people of God is that there'll be a song. He will take our horrible situations and he will bring beauty to it. There will be a door of hope and we will sing back to him as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Well, after Israel crosses the Red Sea in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, they sing the song of Moses and they're giving glory to God. And I love that because there's three times this song shows up. Once is way over there in Exodus, it's right here, but God is actually calling about this other time that it takes place in Revelation 15. This song of Moses is going to be a hit song in eternity where we are praising God And he's doing this from the depths of our wilderness experience. This is a beautiful and redemptive story. You look at Joshua chapter 7, and this is the only battle where they fail. You look at like near ancient literature, near East literature, and all of the stories, most of the stories, many of the stories, talk about the military victories and campaigns because the kings would go out and they would have favor from the gods as they would go out. So there's not a lot of records about lost battles. I think that that is where we are at We don't put out a lot of our lost battles We really just kind of publicize our victories Joshua chapter 7 is the story of Israel trying to fight a battle And going against in a military campaign Doing it without the help and the protection and the favor of God Once they dealt with their shame, once they were rescued from that and they got rid of it, God was with them and God gave them victory. I got an email this week from a friend, and we've been meeting for the last few years, and she has been on a journey, Um, has dealt with alcoholism, has had DUIs, has had brokenness in marriages and relationships. And this, to me, is the essence of what I hope that we can, we can be thinking about in our lives. And she just finished the book of Malachi, talking about worthless offerings that we give to God. And so she says, so I read Malachi and I really identified. By the way, I'm sharing this with her permission, without her name. I read Malachi and I really identified as if that is me, over and over. I know I have a lot of flesh to contend with. What so easily entangles. I need prayer, but I don't loosen my grip on what I used to feel better. Relationships, distractions, isolating, running. It's all that stuff in the gap. Everything I've had to let go of has claw marks. It's powerful to me. I'm an alcoholic and do everything alcoholically. One is too many and 1,000 is never enough. The first step from the 12 steps says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. That applies to everything for me. And admitting that things make my life unmanageable is the hard part. I still want to control everything. God and my physical sobriety is all I have some days because the behavior is sure still there. But I do not enjoy my life apart from Jesus, nor do I like living a life parallel to what I know is right. I want my heart to be different. I want legitimate change. I don't want to give God my lame leftover offerings or defile my temple. I have a real deep anguish in my heart for the position it's been in for the last year and a half. I feel like something has changed. Something is trying to make its way out, but my ego gets in the way a lot. Pray that I have the willingness to surrender and not go back to what is safe. I love the change that God brings in my life. But then what always happens is I hear that reminder voice, the second crappy voice saying, this is as good as it gets for you, so you better take your own happiness. Deep down, I know it's not good. Not all happiness is good. Not all pain is bad. Pray that I grab by the throat the concept of all is permissible, but not is not all is beneficial. God wants to redeem us. God wants to redeem us. But that means sometimes we have to let go of things, even if there are claw marks left behind. So, if you picked up Kinnaman's book and you look in his chapter on marriage, family, and relationships, this is his application, and this is, for us as the church, how we can be different. What we can offer the world today is the hope of Jesus in the wilderness of their troubles. If we could actually do this and do this well, the church might be the safest place on earth. Can we offer people hope in the midst of their trouble, in the wilderness of their trouble? Kinnaman last week, he said, good faith Christians allow their marriages, their families and hospitality to benefit others. I turned 40 this week. (laughs) Yeah, not bad. I don't know why you're clapping. I I guess because I made it and some of you had bets and you want some money just now, but... um, Hospitality. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. You will let anybody into your home... You'll feed them, you'll clothe them, you'll let them even sleep there for God's sake. I don't know what is wrong with some of you, but it's fantastic, we need you. I don't have the gift of hospitality Uh, My wife and I were going through what would my 40th birthday party look like, and I felt some pressure, like needed to be good. And so, we were gonna have just a big backyard party. And I love tacos, so we're gonna have a little taco guy come out. And so we went through the list, and she just started reading off names. And I said, "Okay, well, yes, no, yes, no. If you weren't invited, I still love you. We are gonna have another party. It's October 31st. Um, We're gonna do it here. It's open for everybody. We're gonna call it Light the Night, maybe. Um, We'll see. But it's for everybody." At the end of this little discussion. I said, okay, how many people is that? And she said, 160. And I said, oh, okay, we need to edit this a little bit, but it's late, so uh, let's come back to it. A couple days later, I come back and say, hey, let's, let's go through the list again. Let's uh, get this down to like a reasonable like 50. And she said, oh, I already sent the invite out. And I said, you edit it first, right? She said, no, people, not everyone's going to show up. It'll be fine. And the RSVP started to come in. 120 people in my backyard just last week. And half of me loved it and felt really loved and appreciated. And half me just said, like, when are these people going to (laughs) go? Drinking all my soda. (laughs) I don't have this hospitality, like, just wired in me. It's a work in progress for sure. But for us as the church, we have to do something that is invitational. And so I, I want to challenge us with this. Um, if we're going to help people in their times of wilderness, then we have to understand what this looks like. And so, I want us to just unpack this word wilderness. When we go to Israel, some of us are going in February, um, we sit in the wilderness and we talk about this. Just like the word love has three different, we we talk about like phileo, right? And agape and eros. The word wilderness actually has a few different meanings. So when we just read the word wilderness or desert in the Bible, um, there's actually words behind it that have different meanings. And so the first one is midbar. Everybody say Midbar. Now, this is the most common use for the word wilderness or desert. And if we can offer people hope in the Midbar experiences of their lives. And so this is where I want to connect this. The Midbar is the kind of desert that you can survive in. Shepherds can find grazing for their sheep, but it's not like an overflowing oasis. So an example, you see this it's almost 300 times in the Bible. Isaiah 35, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the Wilderness, in the Midbar. The second one is Sia. Say Sia. Very good. This is used 13 times. And this is the wilderness in which no one can survive. It is uninhabitable land. You can survive it, but you are dependent on the hospitality of strangers. So when you have Bedouins that are hanging out and setting up tent and camp in the wilderness, you are dependent on them in the Sia because You have to basically walk a day's journey to find water. It's interesting. A lot of the major cities that we go to when we go to Israel, they're a day's journey. They're about 26 miles apart. You just see them all along the coast. And you see this is where they would set up. They would walk as far as they can. They would stop and they'd set up camp. And so you are dependent in the desert, in the wilderness, on others. And then the last one is called the yeshimon. Say yeshimon. This is also used 13 times. This is the wilderness in which no one can survive. This is uninhabitable land. Psalm 68 Oh God, when you went out before your people, you marched through the wilderness, the yeshimon. So you can see some of these, but this is the idea. Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, 35 of those years, of those 40 years, they are actually going through what is called the Yeshimon. And Israel did not just survive, but they flourished. God provided everything that they needed. It was the hospitality and the kindness of God that allowed them to survive, what it actually, what's interesting, if you look at the Hebrew, they're going through what is known as the yeshimon, but it's actually described as the midbar. Because when you go through a wilderness experience, when you go through a tough experience in your life that is kind of along the lines of it's unsurvivable, uninhabitable, it's the yeshimon, when you have God and when you have safe community and people who are willing to travel with you, it won't feel like the yeshimon. It will feel like the midbar. We are called to be hospitable. We are called to be loving. If we could somehow make this part of our DNA as a people, as a church, as the church, we wouldn't be irrelevant. We would be relevant. We wouldn't be considered extreme and far out there but we would be known as John 13 says that we would be known by our love in your bulletin today you had a little half sheet card it's two-sided it looks like it's the same but the words are a little bit different and so I want to ask you a couple questions and we're going to have a little bit of time to process this this morning one of these sides it says where is there brokenness that needs healing Trouble that needs hope, maybe shame that needs to be brought up in the following realms of your life. Your life, your marriage, your family, your friendships, your relationships. Where are these places in your life that you need help? You need healing. You need hope. I want you to think about this in terms of your marriage, in your family, in your relationships. And then the other one is, is the more applicable. How can we be practicing this? What can help us to be people that find common ground with everybody else? Not only just us in this room, but everybody outside of this room, is who are the people that you need to make room for or show hospitality to in these realms of your life? Who is your marriage making room for? Your marriage does not have to be perfect for you to be inviting and making room for others in your marriage? Who is your family making room for? How can we bring other people in and show them the love and the hope that is in Jesus Christ? What I want you to do is just take a moment and look at those questions and look at those boxes. You're not going to fill all of this out right now. But just in a moment of silence, can we look at this? Um, The worship band team is going to come back up. And we'll, we'll close out our service in a couple minutes with worship. But I want you to just think, where's the box that you need to focus on a bit more? Even which side do you need to focus on a bit more? Just take one minute, and then let me close us in prayer. Let me pray. God, a lot of us have a lot of work to do. Uh, this is not physical work, but this is a work of our hearts. This is a work of redemption. And honestly, maybe, maybe it's not even so much that we are the ones doing the work, but we just come and bow at your throne and pray that you would be doing the work in us and through us. That it would be by the power of your spirit that we would realize our brokenness and our shame and that we would come to you knowing that you are a God that cares and loves and redeems and offers hope. And the call and challenge for each of us is that we would do the same for those in our lives. So speak to us, bring us out of our shame and Lord, cause us to be people who make room for others to bring theirs to us. Put us in families and communities and life groups that will be healing for us so that your kindness, your hospitality, your love would shine through in the darkest, deepest wildernesses of our life. In Jesus' name.